I hope every senator will vote to open debate, because that's how you change the status quo. This is our opportunity to really make a difference on health care. This is our chance to bring about changes we've been talking about since Obamacare was forced on the American people. It's our time to find I'm Dan Diamond. This is Pulse Check, and that was Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell urging senators to move their health bill to the floor and begin debate. A lot happened in healthcare this week, and we pulled together another news roundup to break it all down. Republicans released their new health bill, and my colleagues Jen Habercorn and Adam Cancran will discuss the reporting from The Hill and who the senators are to watch moving forward. Then after the break, Paul Demko and Sarah Carlin-Smith will discuss the industry's reaction not just to the health bill, but other regulatory news coming out of Washington, D.C. Just a housekeeping note, we had to move the conversation about halfway through the podcast recording. There was a truck outside making very loud beeping noises. So forgive the change in audio quality. And I know that we've done a couple news roundups this week. That's on me. I was off pulse. I was working on a project. So didn't have the guests that we were hoping to, but never fear. We will be back with interviews with leaders, thinkers, and influencers, including some folks that you will definitely know next week on this podcast. And if you like Pulse Check, please remember to rate us, review us, share us, and let me know at ddiamondapolitico.com or at ddiamond on Twitter who you want to hear from next. And with that, let's get to breaking down the Republican health bill this week. It's Friday morning. The Senate has left town, but we are here Funny how that works. Welcome back, Adam Cancran. Good morning. Jen Habercorn. Hi, Dan. To bookend the week. So we were together on Monday laying out how this week could go for the health care bill. Now the health care bill is out. What is the top line takeaway about the changes that they made to the Better Care Reconciliation Act? Uh, well, I, I guess though I'd say there are maybe two major ones, and, and maybe, Jen, you can take one of my. The one I'll take is that it adds a lot more money, just pure money. Um, throws it at uh, funding for opioid treatment, throws it at the stabilization fund, another, I think, $70 billion. The idea being that, you know, you can assuage a lot of the moderates' concerns with um, the reductions in Medicaid spending, the total overhaul of that program, by adding money elsewhere. Um, the idea or the hope, I mean, it's, it's unclear yet whether the moderates are going to flip for yes. the $70 billion in the stabilization and the $45 billion in opioid funding, whether that's enough of a carrot. Exactly. And and the moderate's concern was, look, if you're going to be overhauling Medicaid, if you're going to be capping it, it's funding for the first time, you know, we want to make sure that the people who are on that program don't kind of just get thrown off the rolls with no coverage and no, no help. And so this was kind of a step in, in that direction to try and kind of, you know, paper over those those issues. Again, whether that's something that, that goes far enough, you know, remains to be seen. And then we will see it in the Politico reporting. And so the other big change was this cruise amendment um, that would allow insurers that offer Obamacare plans to also sell a non-compliant plan. This was a um, variation of the Cruz-Lee amendment that was floating around last week, or at least folks were talking about last week. Um, now this has been modified, and Lee is unclear, undecided whether he's going to support 
this amendment and the bill. Is he unclear because it dropped his name from the way that people talk about it when it was the Cruzley amendment he was on board and now that it's just this Well, vague. actually, his office told me that it has changed and it no longer um, allows states to waive out of Obamacare's requirement to have a single risk pool. And of course, you know, this, this one risk pool versus two risk pool business is very wonky, but it has become a really significant issue. I mean, Cruz was in the um, Republican lunch on Thursday telling senators this this will be one risk pool, which was meant to uh, reassure moderates and folks concerned about pre-existing conditions that the sick and healthy were, weren't going to be divided. Um, but, you know, the insurance experts that our colleague Paul talked to yesterday said, you know, there's it's very hard to make this one risk pool. This, this is still going to be separated. And we're going to have Paul on later to debunk some of the claims about the Cruz Amendment and talk about how workable it is. There are questions over mm-hmm. who's going to score this. How much of an impact will it have on the market? So we'll come back to that, I think, with him. I guess the broad question for the two of you who were running around the Hill yesterday tracking down senators, is this bill better for winning over senators? And is it better for the American people compared to version one that we saw a few weeks ago? Well, I mean, you got Cruz on board, which is a pretty big deal. Um, he's actually the only one that I can think of who went from no to, to yes. Um, but... You know, Dean Heller went from a no on the motion to recommit, uh, excuse me, the motion proceed on the prior version. Now he's undecided. So this is definitely moving, folks. The question now that I have is, you know, you have two senators who are absolute no's, Susan Collins and Rand Paul, and we're one from defeat. And I don't expect anyone to be that one that kills it because they will forever be the person that stood in the way of Obamacare repeal. But I could see folks getting together and jumping off that bridge together. Um, And and saying, and when you say defeat, we're talking about the motion to proceed vote, which is something that you flagged on a podcast weeks ago as this first hurdle Mm -hmm. that needs to be cleared to even bring the bill forward for debate. Susan Collins, Rand Paul, who have been strongly opposed to the bill throughout, how strong are they at this point on the motion to proceed? Do we have any sense of whether they could be walked back from this with enough public pressure? Oh, they're they are never going to vote for the motion to proceed on this version of the bill. Um, I, I happened to catch Rand Paul as he was leaving the Capitol um, to go home on Thursday, and he was jokingly giving us advice to stake out Dean Heller's office because at that point we didn't know where he was on the motion to proceed. And I asked him, I was like, is there any way that you could vote to start debate on this? Because sometimes senators will start debate on a bill they don't like. And... He, he goes, oh, yeah, you know, you separate the bill into two. I, I pitched that to the president, you know, an hour ago. This was Thursday afternoon. And he's like, yeah, then I would definitely vote yes. So separate the bill happening. into the repeal bill and, and then replace. a replacement bill, the repeal that he wants, the replacement that he can't get behind. Point being, he's never going to do it. And it's interesting that that Rand Paul and Susan Collins, for better or worse, are really the only two who have stuck to their positions from the 2015 vote. That was a straight repeal of Obamacare through reconciliation is Rand Paul is the only one who now is saying, you know, this is what I want. I don't want to add any more money. I want to roll back Obamacare as much as possible. I'm not, and I'm not going to accept anything less than that. But Rand voted for that 2015 bill. Well, yeah, and absolutely. But this, this is something, essentially he's saying that's the starting point now. Whereas all the rest of the Republicans now are willing to accept something less than that 2015 bill. Mm -hmm. And the same with Susan Collins. She was the only uh, remaining Senator who's still in office who, did not vote for that 2015 bill. And now they're trying to push her towards something that's a repeal of Obamacare. 
and she's stood pretty firm, mainly on on this idea of you know rolling back Medicaid, fundamentally overhauling it. It's something that you know she's pretty firm on uh, on not budging on. So let's talk about who that third vote could be against a motion to proceed, because we have a number of senators who just a few weeks ago said we can't even vote to bring this to the floor. Now they are back, like Dean Heller, in this undecided camp. So maybe thirty to forty-five seconds on each one of these key undecideds. We'll start with Rob Portman, the senator from Ohio, who at one point on Thursday was reported as being against the motion to proceed. That wasn't true. It was a bad look for reporters. But to be fair, his statement was pretty murky, and there's a lot of parsing going on with whether these senators are going to commit or not. So Rob Portman, where does he stand, and can he be moved? Yeah, he's in the undecided camp. And if you look back at the that Interaction. Interaction. You know, it, he said no to lead off his answer to how he would vote. But the question here is, how do you vote? I mean, every senator has reservations. You could, I could pull tape of every single Republican complaining about a part of this bill. The question is, how are they going to vote on this motion to proceed? I think Portman is swayable. If I had to suspect what could happen next, I could see moderates getting together to vote no, to, to announce that they're going to vote no. I could see Portman being part of that category. So I put him as a very, very large question mark at this time. Yeah, I would agree. Um, and, and, you know, it, it seems like he got he made a major demand a few weeks ago, said we need funding for opioid treatment. He got that funding. Um, and he now got some funding. Well, he got some funding. Yeah. So he got 45 billion. The question is whether that's enough uh, and whether that's something that he can use to kind of justify going back to Ohio and saying, you know, but his big concern now is Medicaid. Exactly. It's, it's what can he justify, you know, can he use that fund to now justify going back to Ohio and saying, this is what I did to Medicaid, especially when his own governor is one of the biggest and most outspoken Republicans against this bill. Kasich. And as folks who listen to this podcast heard, Cleveland Clinic CEO Toby Cosgrove is against the Medicaid cut and has been telling Portman as much. Let's move on to Dean Heller, the Nevada senator who was also a key, like, Jen, I thought this guy was so far gone Mm -hmm. that Republicans are already worried about Democrats using his attack on the bill in in ads against them. So how is Dean Heller now suddenly undecided when he hated the last version of the bill so much? Yeah, he would be a really hard flip right now. I mean, that press conference would be played against him ad nauseum in Nevada if he actually votes yes. But I tracked him down yesterday. It took a very, very long time standing um, in the Capitol. But um, he told me that he's undecided. He had a copy of the bill in his hand and said, you know, I'm not going to decide until I read this, until I read this, until I read this. What a great defense mechanism by Republican senators, by the way. Like, yeah. I'm not going to answer your question until I read this bill, which at this point, reporters have already combed through and senators are saying they need more homework time. Yeah, I mean, it's an artful dodge, um, it, but it only gets you so far. I mean, at some point, by Monday, he will have to have read the bill or at least, you know, be ready for our questions and have some kind of more elegant answer. What could move him, given his concerns about Medicaid cuts? And as Adam just pointed out, the Medicaid cuts are still in the bill. What what can move Heller? Governor Sandoval. But Governor Sandoval, as of Thursday evening, it was reported in Nevada that he— um, said that he didn't think this bill was very different from the last version, which obviously he didn't like. So it's hard to see Heller jumping to yes unless um, unless Sandoval's position changes. But again, Heller could say, let's start debate, and hopefully we can change the bill in the course of 
the process. Why would senators vote to start debate on a bill that they are so far against to begin with? I guess there could be changes, but the baseline of the bill is is what it is at this point. Well, this is often a huge issue, and there are non-controversial, or I should say, lower profile pieces of legislation where people do allow debate to start and then they vote no. And it's kind of common, the argument being, you know, we should at least be able to talk about these things. But of course, when you get to a bill like this, this motion to proceed becomes highly, highly controversial. Um, And, you know, there is an argument to be made. You can vote yes on this and then vote no. You have two other options where you can stop a bill that you don't like. So, you know, I could see it both ways. I can see how someone would argue, I want to at least debate Obamacare repeal. Um, That said, you know, are voters going to make a difference in the fall of uh, of an election year between the motion to proceed and final passage, you know? After all the education around what the motion to proceed is the past couple weeks, maybe they'll understand, but I I agree with you. I'm, I'm doubtful. But we went through this on the Affordable Care Act. The motion to proceed vote was insanely controversial, insanely high profile, and everyone has forgotten about it since then. Fair enough. Let's talk about a few more of the senators. Lisa Murkowski, the Alaska holdout who has taken lots of shots at the bill and the process throughout, she is undecided. But there are things in the bill that may make her less undecided. So where is she? Can she be gotten? Well, yeah, it's um, they've they've kind of steered uh, a lot of federal funding specifically, you know, toward Alaska. You can call it, you know, the polar payoff or the Kodiak kickback. And Danny wrote a little bit uh, about uh, some additional funding that would be um, added, you know, through the through the Indian Health Service. So there's a provision in the bill. It, it didn't get as much attention as the money getting pushed over for the insurance markets. But there is a provision that would change who can get funding for treating American Indians, and that includes Alaska Natives. And right now, a lot of that is you know, locked down with the Indian Health Service. Under this provision, all providers would be able to take advantage of this enhanced funding. And 15% of Alaska population are Indians or, or Alaska Natives, as, as they're called. That would bring more money toward the state. It wasn't written just for Murkowski. My reporting is that it comes from John Thune's office, and then there are implications for South Dakota and North Dakota, where mm-hmm. John Hoven has been a holdout too. But it's it's another change that will bring money to a state where there's been a holdout senator. And, and Murkowski's main concern has been, you know, her point has been, look, Alaska is a particularly unique state. We need to make sure that we are taking care of, you know, the individual market, which is much more fragile uh, than a lot of other states. Uh, and make sure that you're taking care of, you know, the, the the Medicaid enrollees there as well. At the same time, she said a couple of weeks ago that, look, I'm not going to be bought off. They can try to direct funds toward my state. That's not going to be something that can make me cave. So she's kind of in between here because if she now votes yes on the motion proceed, well, you know, it's, that statement looks really bad in retrospect. On the other hand, look, there are millions of dollars headed her way if this bill passes. So what about Capito and in terms of someone who had been holding out because of Medicaid dollars? Adam, you talked to her. She told you she wasn't afraid to be the vote to kill the health bill. And now she's undecided. So how much has she moved and how gettable is she for Republicans who want to pass this bill? Sure. And I, I think I put her probably closest to Portman as far as what they want and, and, and how gettable they are. I, I think it's it's certainly somebody who can get to yes, who can vote yes, and who, you know, by voting record and, and based on what she said, 
thinks that there needs to be some kind of an overhaul, some kind of a, uh, a new health care system. This may not be her ideal one. Uh, I think this still cuts Medicaid too deeply for her. Uh, but, you know, you have the opioid fund. You, you throw, you know, tens of millions more dollars at, at kind of making sure that anybody who gets thrown off of Medicaid gets some kind of, um, you know, ends up with some kind of coverage. And it goes a long way toward, toward making her more comfortable. So even though that opioid money is $45 billion over a decade, over the entire country, that's enough to force some change in thinking? I don't think the opioid money has moved anybody. I mean, I think it helps Portman and Capito get closer, but they still have, you know, big concerns. I think a lot of folks saw the opioid funding as something they had to do. So I don't I don't think it moved a lot. Who else in the suddenly undecided camp should we take note of, Jen? Is there another one of these folks who came out against the bill in an earlier stage who is now on the fence and could be that third vote against the motion to proceed? Well, we haven't talked about Mike Lee, and he put out a statement Thursday evening saying that he was undecided. Um, there's Republicans are hoping that Cruz's support will help get Lee on board. Um, but as we mentioned, his amendment had changed. He has problems with it. Um, so at this point, I'm looking at Lee, Heller, and Capito as the three closest to no votes. But as we've mentioned, there's many others. And getting back to an idea that you pointed out, Jen, and I've seen folks write about this, Jim Newell at Slate, I thought had a interesting piece about how some of this is kabuki theater. There was never going to be a third no the day that the bill was released because mm-hmm. of the fear of being that senator to kill the bill, that there will either be two no's and then they'll end up moving ahead with the motion to proceed, or there will be seven no's and they'll come out as a block. Is Capito, Lee, Heller, like could the three of them band together and issue a statement being the third, fourth, and fifth no, or is that kind of a weird coalition of folks? I think that would be a weird coalition. I think if there was one, it would be Portman, Capito, maybe Heller, um, more of the moderates. Lee is kind of his own animal. Obviously, he's opposed to the bill at the other end of the political spectrum. There would have to be some kind of coalition. Yeah, I I agree. I I think that would be kind of a a strange one, although you could certainly see, you know, those three come out and be nose and then Lee on his own saying, Mm -hmm. look, this doesn't go far enough for me. Uh, And at that point, now you're starting to cascade uh, and you're getting, you know, seven, eight, maybe 10 no votes as as it kind of becomes clear that that the bill is going to go down. And McConnell's telling folks, don't come out and say you're a no. Like, come to the table, tell me what you need, what you want, and we'll work on it. Because he knows that if there were three no's yesterday, you know, the game's kind of over. And their strategy right now is get through the day, get to the motion to proceed. You know, we can start debate. Your vote is, you know, just start talking about this. It isn't final passage. You can vote yes when the first vote comes up, and then still oppose it later. It's fair to say that they've got the marathon, not sprint mentality here of this is a long slog. We're only going to worry about that next stop. So thinking about what that next thing could be, looking ahead to Monday and next week, what is one thing that you're watching in terms of the development of this bill? One thing that I would love to talk about, at least briefly, is who's scoring these changes, because that's been a key point of debate. So we're expecting the CBO score on Monday, which will be the, mod- the the new Senate bill without the Cruz-Lee, or I should say Cruz amendment in it. That was when it when the text came out was in brackets. The score is not supposed to, not expected to include that. 
Um, so they might be voting on the motion to proceed without the score of that amendment, and then there's going to be another uh, score either of that amendment or the whole bill with it later. Um, so obviously that CBO score will be a pretty big deal, and I think that might solidify some folks' votes on the motion to proceed. And we're still expecting it to project somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 million fewer people with health insurance over a decade. Is there anything else that you're watching, Adam? Well, I'll, I'll add on a little bit more on the CBO score. I'm, it's it's something that in the past we've seen, you know, okay, you have a, a block of moderates who say, well, we're not so sure about this bill. Then the CBO score comes out, they see the number of uninsured, and that kind of firms up their opposition. I, and, you know, for what it's worth, it not having the Cruz Amendment in there is not going to make a difference to moderates. If it comes, if the score comes out and they don't like it, you know, in their minds, look, the the Cruz Amendment isn't going to improve anything. Um, so it's kind of like, look, you are you're either accepting that and and you're going to vote for it, or you're not going to vote for it at that point. Um, you know, the other thing that I'm looking out for is is are there more modifications to come? Every time we saw this in the House. We could see this in the Senate as well. Every time it seems like the bill is settled and final, there's always a little bit, you know, a little bit more room to make some tweaks. And so whether that is more money once, you know, once Republicans see how much room they have left from the CBO score, um, whether it is another tweak uh, to the Cruz Amendment to get Mike Lee back on board, this is a very much negotiation that's ongoing. Two things that I want to follow on with that. First, the idea of more money. This bill decided to keep the revisions, kept these Affordable Care Act taxes, which gives McConnell another $100 million or so, more, a couple hundred million, to play with if he wanted to make deals down the road. I think that's the only reason it, it appears it might be in the bill, because it didn't do much to change coverage. It just cut some of the tax savings for rich And folks. it gives them, it eliminates the Democrats' political message that this was just a tax cut for the rich. And then the other piece with the scoring is the idea that CBO isn't going to be potentially scoring the Cruz Amendment, but that Akeshake Jesswood, which is a major break with precedent, tradition, and some degree of, of lack of bias. Akeshake Jess is a Republican-led institution right now. And even if the career staff within Akeshake Jess are not partisan in any way, Akeshake Jess would have control over what the message would be coming out of, of their score of the Cruz Amendment if they move forward with that plan. Yeah, and I'm, I, and this is something we should probably look into before next week. It's unclear to me whether the Senate is actually allowed to vote without the CBO score. I mean, certainly Democrats will challenge this, but Republicans need it in the Senate because they need the parliamentarian needs to confirm that they've, you know, saved enough money, that they've saved as much money as the House bill. And without a CBO score... I don't know that the parliamentarian would let that go. Yeah, my understanding is that they might have more flexibility here, given it's a norm and something that, just like with the filibuster, something that could be changed with enough political support. But we will see. And we will see what happens next week. So, Jen, Adam, thank you for joining Pulse Check again. And thank you for all the reporting you've been doing on the Hill. Thank Thanks, you. Dan. Hey, it's Dan Diamond. And just a reminder, if you like Pulse Check, the podcast, you will love Politico Pulse, the newsletter. You can find it at politico.com slash politicopulse. We just made a makeover to the email format, so it should look nice and clean and new. It is free for everyone at 10 a.m. If you're a pro subscriber, you get it at 6 a.m. You can sign up for free at politico.com slash politicopulse. Joining me in this next segment 
Paul Demko, who tracks the insurance industry, and Sarah Carlin-Smith, who's our pharma reporter, talk about the Republican bill and where the industry stands on some of its other priorities. Now I am joined by my colleague, Sarah Carlin-Smith. Hello, Sarah. Hi, Dan. How's it going? And Paul Demko. Hi, Dan. Hello, Paul. So both of you have tracked the ACA repeal fight. You've been writing stories about what's happening in Congress, but also tracking what's happening in the broader industry. And I think that's where we want to take this part of the conversation. But first, Paul, the Cruz-Lee Amendment, which was this last-minute change to win over the conservatives, you've talked to folks out in the insurance industry. Do they think this change can work? No, they absolutely do not. I mean, the insurance industry has been pretty mealy-mouthed about a lot of um, the repeal stuff, Um, you know, trying to, you know, oppose pieces of it, but also kind of encourage Republicans for things that they want, particularly stabilization dollars. And this was really notable in that both America's Health Insurance Plans and Blue Cross Blue Shield Association came out very strongly blasting this proposal from Senator Cruz and saying basically that um, you know premiums will, would skyrocket for people with expensive medical conditions to such a degree that they'd be essentially locked out of coverage and it would completely undercut you know the protection uh, pre-existing condition protection so they are they are strongly strongly opposed to this Jen Adam and I talked a bit about the scoring of this amendment which Republicans are hinting they might go around the CBO and go to HHS, which is a major break from tradition and and precedent and also may not be allowed under the rules. It's a little unclear. I'm curious if this provision can even be scored, Paul, because there are all these vague pieces of it. And and you're shaking your head no. Well, I mean, it's the same challenge we had with the MacArthur Amendment in the House, where how do you score something where you don't know exactly how it's going to play out and what states are going to do? I think it would present a similar challenge to CBO in this. You're going to have to make some assumptions um, that are going to be very difficult to to, to make and, you know, and and will be – more fodder potentially for Republicans to try to undermine the CBO. And you, you could argue it both ways. Democrats could say that the CBO is maybe taking the middle of the road approach and not the most pessimistic approach. Republicans can say the CBO or whoever ends up scoring this bill is assuming too much. So that's the insurers. And we've also talked a lot in recent weeks about hospitals and doctors and advocates coming out against this bill. One of the biggest players in healthcare has been pretty silent here, and that's pharma. This is your beat, Sarah. You you talk to the pharma industry all the time. Where do they stand on what's moving forward, considering if millions of people lose coverage, there is the chance that there will be less money to pay for drugs? So far, they've been pretty neutral or at least publicly trying to keep out of the limelight. They are very concerned about you know, any negative attention coming from Congress or the president about drug prices. So they don't really want to be seen as opposing a big initiative of this administration. I think there are definitely some good arguments that with Medicaid cuts and any changes to essential health benefits in the states and so forth, there could be less people with drug coverage under this plan and there would be some economic hits for the industry. Moving a little bit away from ACA repeal and to some of the other things that might be coming, this is, again, your reporting, an executive order on drug prices, the Opioids Commission from Chris Christie. We were expecting movement that we haven't seen 
on those two issues. How much of that is about the timing here of ACA repeal and how much is just the White House, Chris Christie, whoever, tied up with other things? So I think um, the executive order on drug pricing being tied up um, with the ACA repeal is definitely one reason we haven't seen that yet. My impression also is um, they're still working on actually hashing out those policies and figuring out what they really want in there. Um, In terms of the Opioid Commission, I don't think the repeal process has anything to do with that. Obviously, we do know Chris Christie's been a little busy dealing with New Jersey's budget, spent a little time on the beach, so perhaps that's interfered with his ability to get his commission together. Well, maybe he was out there thinking about what he wants to do on opioids. He needed to go to a very, very quiet place to have some privacy and, and ponder what is next for the opioid crisis. That's possible. Not sure that's what I would do on the beach, but, you know, everybody's got their thing. Is there, Paul, is there a sense in the insurance industry that ACA repeal is coming at the right time, the wrong time? And, and you wrote a story about profitability in these markets, and there are concerns that not as many insurers are going to participate in the ACA markets moving forward, but there's also research that insurers are starting to see profits where maybe they didn't before. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a fair number of indications that insurers have, after, you know, severe struggles over the last three years and big time losses, like probably close to $20 billion, um, that they are starting to figure these markets out and that they're stabilizing. You know, part of that was big premium hikes that we saw for 2017. Um, Part of that is just, you know, coming to terms with who this population is and who you're going to be covering and how expensive they're going to be. Um, So we had a Kaiser study that came out. Granted, it was just looking at the first quarter of the year. So that's not, you know, indicative of the entire year. But they compared... And this is Kaiser Family Foundation, not Kaiser Permanent. Exactly. Kaiser Family Foundation. And it showed that that insurers were spending about 75% of premiums on medical claims uh, in the first quarter. And that's um, a very good ratio. Um, But they also compared it to first quarters in past years. And so like in the comparable period in 2016, they spent 85% of premiums on medical claims. So that's a significant improvement. And there was another report. um, It's an improvement because the patients aren't as sick, essentially, and and they've got their costs under control. Is that what you're... uh, No, I think it's more that they're charging more. And, and, you know, premiums have gone up and... And now they They're are pricing correctly yes, for this market. Exactly. And you know, Standard and Poor's put out a similar report back in April looking at um, the the blue plans, which are really the dominant carriers in most states at this point, and it found a very similar thing that they'd approach profitability in twenty seventeen and that most plans would likely be profitable in twenty eighteen. And S P I think has done some of the best work looking at these markets for the last you know, over the last three years. So they have a lot of credibility. I don't want to be too pessimistic, Paul. I guess this is good news overall, but there are these concerns about where the markets are going to go from here. We've had statement after statement from insurance companies say the uncertainty from Washington might be driving them away from the exchange. So how solid is this ultimately, this early profitability? And could the market still turn relatively quickly 
in the wrong direction. It's very, very fragile. I mean, we've already seen a lot of market exits. We've seen a reduction in competition. We have, uh, I think it's 38 counties across the country where no insurers filed plans to sell. And the thing you have to keep in mind, and there's so much uncertainty about, you know, what's going to happen with the repeal bill, um, whether the Trump administration is going to enforce the individual mandate, whether the Trump administration is going to cut off cost sharing uh, subsidies. And insurers, you know, have until late September in most places to pull out of these markets for 2018. So you could still very much see an exodus in the coming weeks if if they get, um, you know, bad news about any on any of those fronts. 340B shifting gears and talking about that program. While we were all focused on this repeal effort, Sarah, there was a major shift in how the 340B program could work. Can you explain what that change was and why it matters so much? So um, late on Thursday, CMS put out a rule they put out every year that relates to reimbursement for hospital outpatient facilities and other hospital services. And in this rule, they took a unique action aimed, they say, at um, getting at drug pricing or at least drug costs for certain consumers and parts of the government. And so bear with me because this is a little bit complicated. In the certain hospitals that serve a high amount of low income um, or uninsured patients get very steep discounts on drugs. And then, but in this program, they still, if you're, say, you're treating a Medicare patient, you're still reimbursed at a much higher rate for that drug than what you purchased it for. And you don't necessarily have to pass along the savings you got on the drug to a patient or even necessarily give the cheaper drugs to patients that are actually have financial need. So one of the things they're proposing is to no longer reimburse these 340B drugs for Medicare Part B patients at such a high rate. Now, it's interesting because this will definitely um, cut what hospitals make off the drugs. People are saying it should lower um, consumers' co-pays or co-insurance, but it won't necessarily get to the fundamental issue of what the drug industry prices drugs at because they're still going to be purchased for the exact same price by the hospitals. So for a pretty small segment of the population, their co-pays and co-insurance will go down. But it's not a big system kind of fundamental shift that's going to create a lot of drug pricing dynamics in the U.S. And isn't am, am I wrong that the, the, the hospitals are the losers here? They're the ones that are going to take a hit financially, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, so the hospitals are definitely going to take a hit. It'll The thing that's complicated, I think there are legitimate arguments that 340B is not maybe the best administered program. Again, because you get the discounts for all the drugs, no matter who you're serving. You don't necessarily have to pass along those discounts to the patients who need them. And there are definitely some reports that hospitals kind of abuse the system. They figure out ways to kind of qualify for 340B when maybe they shouldn't or get their outpatient departments in wealthier areas to qualify. But then there's also probably some hospitals that are doing a lot of good with this program with the savings they make and actually are passing it on to save to patients or using it for uncompensated care. And is it, and, and this is just a proposal at this point? 
Yeah, so this is a proposed rule, so it'll have to go through comments and all it'll that be an, fun I mean, stuff. It should be an interesting lobbying fight. I mean, when, you know, with, insh- with hospitals on one side and pharma on the other, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. And there were some other um, ch- proposals in that rule that hospitals didn't like, from my understanding. So changes um, about where some expensive, like, orthopedic procedures can be performed that may take some business away from hospitals. Also, um, some other changes to what um, hospital outpatient departments can be paid that I think they're also not happy with. So it's, I think the 340B thing is getting the most attention, but overall, the whole rule wasn't exactly taken well by hospitals. I mean, overall, you could argue this was a pretty horrible week for hospitals. The new version of the Republican bill keeps all the Medicaid cuts, which has been their big hobby horse because it will hit them hard. And now these changes coming out too. Is there any connection between the two? Hospitals have have pushed back on the Republican bill. Now a Republican administration is pushing changes that will hurt hospitals. Do we have any sense for that? You know, I don't think there's any clear proof at this point that they're connected and related, but, you know, I think it is notable that an an industry that has not helped Republicans or this administration get their health care proposal over the line is now on the chopping block in other ways. Whereas Pharma had a very high-profile meeting with Donald Trump who had vowed to wage war on this industry, and we haven't seen that yet. Let's think about the one thing, to to close this segment of the conversation, the one thing that may have gone under the radar because of all this other healthcare news. Is there something from your beats that you would call out? I got one thing that comes to mind, and I don't know that it's gone under the radar screen necessarily, but I would want to flag it because... Um, you know, we've been going on this month-by-month uncertainty about cost-sharing reduction payments, and Trump is kind of holding over the head of the insurance industry. And just to be clear, these are the payments that would go to help support the Affordable Care Act shoppers and the insurers who participate in the market. Exactly. And guess what the next deadline is? Next Thursday. So just as uh, <laughs> just as the Senate is uh, gearing up for a potential vote that for day, for a potential vote. Um, Trump could announce, guess what? I'm cutting off these these uh, subsidy payments. Um, time for the Senate to get its shit together and uh, pass this bill. That That is not only is that <laughs> over the radar, it should be like a big red dot blinking for everyone tracking this. Sarah, what about you? So one of the things that didn't get a ton of attention this week is the House passed this big FDA reauthorization act, which... Um, helps fund the FDA, its user fee programs that the drug and medical device industries pay. Um, One thing I want to point out is that the Trump administration actually yesterday also issued a statement on the um, law, and they were sort of took a middle ground. They were reasonably positive about the law, but they um, once again pushed this idea that they want the drug industry and the medical device companies to be paying more to FDA. They also, what I thought was really interesting was they called out part of the law that tries to get more generic competition in place, which is kind of interesting for an administration that, again, has been focused on drug pricing. And they take issue with the idea of giving some new marketing exclusivity to generic companies that try and go in when there's really no competitors. So I thought that was pretty interesting. And the other thing with this whole ACA fight going on in the Senate is really this law needs to be passed before August 1st. So FDA doesn't have to send out um, potential layoff notices to its workers. And it's going to be very, very tight if the Senate can actually get to take up this bill at this point. 
um, before that August deadline. So that'll be something to watch. The Senate has been so consumed with ACA repeal that it's pushed off lots of things, including this pretty important piece for FDA. So... Yeah, I think they're ho- what they're hoping at this point is the leadership on the Senate Health Committee and ENC really work together to make sure the bill the House voted on was pretty much the same bill the Senate's going to vote on. The problem is you have a couple people in the Senate who would like to amend that bill and would like their chance on the floor to kind of take their stand. So we'll have to see whether those people kind of roll over and say, okay, we can just pass this bill straight up as it is. And one of them is Ron Johnson who would like to get this right-to-try law in place that would let patients kind of skirt the FDA when they want to try experimental drugs. So that'll be very interesting. You also probably have people on the left, like Bernie Sanders, who would love to bring up drug pricing and drug importation in particular, I think. And he was always, during the committee hearings, told, you know, don't put your amendment here. Don't make it controversial. You can do it on the floor. You can do it on the floor. And so will he be okay you know, saying, okay, I won't push this because we just need to get this bill to the president as fast as possible. It's yet another example of all the focus on drug pricing and how much could and and should change there being overshadowed by the ongoing fights over Obamacare. Coming into this year, I think we were expecting drug pricing to be maybe a little bit more, if not the if issue one, maybe issue 1A, and it's flying under the radar in so many different ways right now. Yeah, I mean, it does make you wonder. I mean, there was a lot of polling data that showed that the number one issue uh, of concern to Americans is is drug pricing, and yet they're spending all their time on trying to overhaul uh, individual insurance markets. Yeah, and and you know, at a time when there, there's doesn't seem to have any public support for doing that. So it's a strange it's a strange set of choices they're making. Speaking of strange choices, I was trying to think while the two of you were talking about the one story that I thought was under the radar, and there has been this fight between Gwyneth Paltrow's goop and and the media, but I, which which has gone under the radar. But if you read the articles, it's it's very the, undercover by Politico <laughs> Pro. Well, well, Vox and uh, and BuzzFeed have been all over that, and that is not a backhanded compliment. There, their articles have been good and funny about why it's it's such a silly story. But something that's a little bit more meaningful in our world, the Commonwealth Fund, uh, I think this morning, put out its latest report on how the university... eh. But something that's a little bit more relevant in our world is the Commonwealth Fund on Friday morning put out its latest report comparing the United States to other developed countries on measures of health care. This will not be a shocker, but yet again, the United States was bottom of the list when looking at the United Kingdom and Germany and uh, other major economies that we can be compared to when it comes to key access and quality issues. Well, I think we're number one on spending. I was going to say, I was going to say first, but we spend a lot more than many of these countries, but the results don't show that at all. I mean, I guess the number one in spending is, is helpful for boosting the industry that all of us cover. So maybe there's a trickle-down effect in health reporter employment. But when it comes to the stuff that actually makes healthcare matter, bring this back to what Sarah was saying and, and your point too, Paul, there are choices that could be made about what to focus on, how to improve the healthcare system. And I, part of me can't believe, I, I totally get the political reasons, but we're hashing out again changes to the individual insurance market when there are deeper quality access, other problems, provider power, which is a big focus of my reporting, that just don't get dealt with or just get overlooked completely. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a shame, too, because, you know, we've come through this period of great turbulence, um, you know, since 2013 with full implementation. And I think we're finally starting to reach a kind of a place of equilibrium where maybe you could have looked at, you know, okay, we've, we've got this system in place. It's got all kinds of problems and things that need to be fixed, but, you know, could maybe turn your attention to some of those things like driving down costs and whatnot. But now instead we're, you know, spending months debating uh, 5% of the health insurance market. I think um, one of the things we also didn't hit on here, um, and our editor, Joanne Kennan, wrote a good story about it last week, is a lot of what the Republicans have been focusing on is premiums, those like monthly payments people make for their insurance. And nobody's really been talking about ways to reduce costs when you actually go and get the care. And I think that's an interesting part of the debate because for consumers, um, that's a big part of it. It's not just your premiums. It's what happens when you actually have that health incident and you need care and how much it costs. That's a great story by Joanne, a good endorsement from all of us. Read Joanne Kennan's story and tune back into Pulse Check next week and keep following the reporting of our team as we track not just ACA repeal and potential replace, but all of these other issues too. Sarah Carlin Smith, Paul Demko, thank you for joining Pulse Check. You're welcome. Thanks for having us. That's it for Pulse Check this week. My thanks to Rachel Cusick and Bridget Mulcahy for producing, and my colleagues Jen Habercorn, Adam Cancrin, Sarah Carlin Smith, and of course, Paul Demko for making time to join. You can find Pulse Check on your favorite podcast app. And if we're not on it, let me know. I'm at ddiamond at politico.com. And we'll be back with a new episode of Pulse Check next week.